Hello, I'm Caleb Howard, and this is Tales from Sacred Texts. The world is built on stories. From the beginning of time, humans have immersed themselves in legends and myth. When God himself wanted to explain to us what he was like, he didn't push elaborate treatises, but instead told stories about humanity. In this podcast, I tackle the concept of religion through stories and legends. Told through a 21st century lens, I explain to religious and non-religious people alike the stories that lie at the very heart of the belief that maybe there is a God, and maybe he really is good. This time, we'll be doing the story of the Holy War. It's from a classic piece of Christian literature written by John Bunyan. We have already talked a little bit about Bunyan earlier this season when we did the four-part series on his most famous work, Pilgrim's Progress, but I'll go into a little bit more detail on who he was. John Bunyan, born in England in the 1600s, joined Oliver Cromwell's successful rebellion against the English crown at the age of 16. After the king was defeated and executed, Bunyan returned home to practice his trade as a tinker. There, he became interested in religion and joined an independent religious movement known as the Bedward Meeting. Bunyan left his trade as a tinker and became a preacher, but when the monarchy was restored, the king began to imprison those who did not practice the state religion. Bunyan's connection to the movement that had executed the previous king didn't get overlooked either. John Bunyan wasn't close enough to Cromwell to get himself executed, but he was close enough to become a particular target of the state. Between his religion and his former status as a Cromwellian roundhead, the state eventually caught up with John Bunyan, who ended up serving 12 years in a filthy dungeon. While in prison, Bunyan began writing The Pilgrim's Progress. He was later released and published that well-known allegory. Due to The Pilgrim's Progress's fame, Bunyan spent his later years as a popular author and preacher. He later started on his next, but far less successful allegory, The Holy War. The Holy War was published a few years before Bunyan died and, like Pilgrim's Progress, was an allegory about how to live the Christian life. John Bunyan apparently was facing some accusations of plagiarism and immorality when he wrote The Holy War because he includes a cute little poem about how good of a guy he is. He talks about how some accuse him of wanting to be a father so badly that he'd even father bastards. Wow, how ideas of morality have changed. He tells his readers that the story of Pilgrim's Progress was 100% his work, that the story was not known to any human being until, and quote, I had done it. He repudiates the allegations against him, saying that, quote, John such dirt heap never was since God converted him. Bunyan reaffirms his standing as an honorable man and a Christian before he launches into the Holy War. The Holy War is an extremely tedious book, and you should know that I have very heavily modified this story to make it palatable to 21st century listeners. The original contains an immense amount of tedium. We slog through almost nonstop courtroom scenes, treatises, racist language, and military statistics. We are told the lord and sigil of pretty much everyone who fights in every battle, and there are a lot. 
But beyond the tedious details and ancient prejudices, I think that there's a beautiful story that reveals a lot about God. I'll be bringing this story out as best as I can. We're going to do it in parts. We'll do the first half of the Holy War in the next two episodes until we get to a nice stopping point. We'll go on to other topics, but I promise we'll return to finish up the book eventually. We start our story not with a good Christian man, nor with a person questioning the meaning of life, nor even with God and the angels. We start our story with a horde of demons aimlessly wandering through the universe. The group of demons were on a trek, bored, anxious, packs on their backs, and trudging from place to place. They were doing really bad. When I say doing bad, I don't mean that they were being super evil, causing mischief and chaos and hurting people. They all wished they were doing that, but they were bad at their job. They were super excited to do evil, yeah, but they had never done one single evil thing. Logically, they were all struggling with imposter syndrome. Part of the reason they were feeling so incompetent, they admitted, was because their leader's name was Diabolical, and that sounded like the kind of name a seven-year-old child would pick. As demons, half the battle was striking fear into the hearts of humans, and they weren't feeling like the name Diabolical really cut it. It sounded like a cartoonish Marvel movie villain. Diabolical slapped the narrator with his whip. Seriously, henchmen? Get his name out of their filthy mouths. The demon who'd been hit broke into a grin. That's what demons did, right? That was super evil, hitting your friends with a whip and cursing at them. They were well on their way to becoming a super corrupt demon troop. Yeah, super evil. Could they even say, diabolical? Diabolical rolled his eyes. He'd seen a thing or two, and this whole goofy demon coming-of-age thing was just really exhausting. But since he'd never actually succeeded in doing anything evil either, and because this lot were all the allies he had, he said nothing. When the demonic troop turned a corner, they all fell silent and held their breath. They were looking at the most beautiful city they'd ever seen, shimmering in the sun like a jewel. Sapphire, ruby, emerald, pearl, crystal, gold, blinding them with its glory. Some stumbled back, full of hatred at its light and happiness, but the others began to grin. This was the cure for their imposter syndrome. Take this place down, and they'd never be laughed at again. This was their chance for glory. It was time to go into the town, smash it up, kill some people, torture some more, wreak havoc, be super evil. Diabolical snapped. Nope. They were going to close their eyes, walk by, and go somewhere else as quickly as they could. The demons looked at their leader. What? Why? This didn't make any sense at all. Diabolical sat down and motioned to the others to do the same. He sighed. 
Did they know where they were? They were just outside of Mansoul. The few demons that knew what that was groaned, but the others looked at Diabolical expectantly. He continued. It was a terrible place, full of good and happiness and love. Everyone there was happy. And by that, he did mean they had the highest HDI in the galaxy. No one was lonely or depressed, everyone had plenty, and the town was thriving. Horrible, horrible place. God was its king. And in fact, there was a palace where God himself would stay from time to time. Diabolical looked down at his demons, downcast. He got it. It was, in theory, a really great place to destroy. As he said, it was one of the many homes of God himself. If he got three wishes from a genie in the bottle, all three would be to destroy the place and make everyone there miserable. Excuse me, one of the demons interrupted, raising his hand. The word genie comes from jinn, which is loosely Arabic for demons. Did they get to give three wishes too? Diabolical roared with laughter. Demons were good at illusions. Tricks. They had their own magic, but it was mostly just useful for illusionism and deception. When they were up against divine magic, they were powerless. Speaking of divine magic, that was the issue with Mansoul. The city was protected by good magic, far beyond their own, that was resistant to any demonic spell. The city could not be touched by any demon, nor could any demon enter unless they were invited in. Which, yeah, they could see where he was going now. This beautiful, angelic, spectacular city was not going to invite the demons in. Eye gate, nose gate, mouth gate, ear gate, and feel gate were closed to them forever. The gates were called what? One of the demons in the back jumped up. Diabolical rolled his eyes. God named them, and yeah, he thought the names were dumb, but that was the least of his quarrels with God. He'd been an employee of God once, but God had fired him from his job, and that was like his demon origin story. He'd become super evil because he was desperate for revenge. I mean, sure, the reason he'd been fired was because he tried to kill God's son, but that was kind of irrelevant, to be honest. Just trying to kill God's son? Literally what? That was all the relevant in the world, the demons chorused back. Why hadn't Diabolical told them that before? Diabolical looked downcast. He hadn't told them because he was ashamed that he hadn't succeeded. Everyone who knew him was ashamed he hadn't succeeded. Had any of them wondered why he was leading a sad little troop of demons stumbling through the world? There was nothing else he was qualified to do. The big jobs were for demons who actually succeeded, and he was a failure. Was he even a real demon? Could he do anything right? The demons crowded around him, encouraging him. They would do it one of these days. They sat there, commiserating in a wholesome, I guess, circle of demons. They gathered around, cursing God together. All but one of the demons. Ilpaws, in the back, didn't press in and simper over Diabolical. Instead, he smiled. He had a plan. He first reminded them that they were all shapeshifters. Classic demon ability. They all remembered that, right? 
The demons nodded, but they didn't really see how that would help. Ilpaz smiled, his rotten, demonic teeth forming a sickening grin. Couldn't they see? He would explain. He could tell them how to use their abilities to vanquish Mansoul. He began talking, and Diabolical's glum face began to break out into a horrible smile. When he finished, Diabolical whooped, shrieked, and howled, and the rest of the demons joined in. Mansoul was already theirs. So we're going to do it now, the demons asked. No time like the present. Diabolical shook his head. John Bunyan was writing this. They were going to do a multi-part treatise complete with every question on the books. They were going to ask whether they should tell the townspeople that they were horrible demons, whether they should tell the townspeople that they wanted to kill them all. The demons rolled their eyes. No and no. Let's just get going. Ilpaws had a great idea. Diabolical rolled his eyes. Now they were going to vote on everything. After way too much debate, like the kind you see on a student organization board where everyone agrees, but each person has to get in their 60-second piece on why their idea is so great, the votes were taken, slowly, one by one. The indecision was about what you'd expect. They were going to do what they'd initially suggested. Be very technically honest with the city, but also very deceptive and attempt to talk their way in. As Diabolical had said earlier, the magic of the city only prevented the demons from entering without consent. And as Ilpaz had happened to have previously learned, inside the city there was a tree that the residents were forbidden to touch because its fruit was bewitched. The moment that someone even tasted the fruit, they would follow the demons' every command. So all the demons needed to do was to get a couple people to eat it and then make it back to the city gates without being killed by the other townspeople. Diabolical was going to shapeshift into a dragon and talk somebody, hopefully a lot of somebodies, into eating the fruit. A what? Literally, you could pick anything and you pick a fierce, ugly, power-hungry, greedy beast. The demons shook. They could already feel the scorching heat as they were caught and thrown into the lake of fire. There went the guys who bit off more than they could chew. Diabolical gestured around. Like that blue dragon? That green one? That red one in the tree? The orange one directly overhead? They all glittered and spoke in poetry. This wasn't the Game of Thrones universe. They could calm all the way down. A dragon was going to work. Dragons were like so chill. Now the rest of the demons would kindly please turn invisible, which apparently they could do, before he walked up to the city and started talking. All but Ilpaz, who is going to appear as a dignified official. Suit and tie kind of thing. Diabolical the dragon started by flattering the people of Mansoul. He spoke in eloquent poetry, while Ilpaz sauntered up and made an exaggerated show of looking around. Nice digs. He was a fan of their city. Top five destinations in the universe? He'd read about them in a magazine, and wow, it looked so much better in person. But he did worry a bit, because the people were missing out. 
That tree he'd read about, the one called the Knowledge of Good and Evil, they had a lot of those where he was from, and they were so good. The fruit also gave you the knowledge of good and evil. Go figure. I mean, it was great. He really couldn't put how good this fruit was into words. If he were them, he'd give up eternal life and let a bunch of demons into the city just to taste the fruit once. He'd what? Will, a handsome young man and one of the leading nobles of Mansoul, looked down from the wall. Oh, nothing, nothing. Ilpaws threw up his hands. His real concern wasn't that the people of the city couldn't eat some of the best gourmet fruit in the world. No, he got it. Maybe they just weren't fruit people. Maybe they didn't want knowledge of good and evil. Oh well, you do you. What he really worried about was that the travel guides had overhyped Mansoul. They were ranked number one best place to live in the galaxy, but their king wouldn't let them eat a piece of fruit? Sounded like North Korea to him. The people actually put up with this? They were dumber than he thought. They weren't brave enough to rise up and throw off such an oppressive ruler? He made this really long journey to see their city, and he was really disappointed. Will leaned over the wall. These guys, well, Dragon and Guy, had a point. Out of everyone in the city, whose attitudes ranged from skeptical to cautiously interested, Will was the most on board with what the demons were saying. Will loved going against the grain. The established order of things peeved him just by existing. And I get it. Will's attitude is a little bit too relatable for me. Not let a horde of murderous demons into my city relatable, but it's a bit of a call-out nonetheless. Ilpaws saw that he was making progress and continued, barely holding in the excitement swelling through his chest. He looked over at the dragon to hide his smile. The dragon had tried the fruit too, hadn't he? The dragon emphatically nodded. Yeah, they were missing out. How about he make a deal with them? One of them go, try the fruit, see if he was telling the truth. If he was, they'd go from there. If he was lying, they could tell him to leave, kill him, whatever they wanted. Just try it. Will leaned over, his mouth suddenly craving the sweet fruit that he had never yet tasted. He was not expecting this morning to be anywhere near this interesting, but he was here for it. How had he never wondered what the fruit tasted like? His curiosity dialed up to 11, he determined within himself that he would try this fruit if it killed him. He jumped down from his perch and nearly raced across the town to where the tree grew, fenced off, and he tore his way through the fencing like a mad, starving man. Many others from the town were already there, and though conscience, an elderly man with a deep voice that shook the ground every time he spoke, screamed at them to stop. Wait. The townspeople began to tear through the fencing like ravenous zombies. They seized the fruit and bit into its tender, tantalizing flesh. Its pungent taste was the last thing they remembered. As they chewed the fruit, they became bewitched. The demonic fruit had done its work. They had only one thought. Open the gate and let the two strangers in.
Diabolical's red dragon face did its best attempt at a grin. Their plan had worked. Now, just as a backup, did Tissaphone want to cast the killing curse on Captain Resistance and anyone else important looking standing on the walls who still hadn't tried the fruit? There is no visible movement, but Captain Resistance and Captain Innocence crumbled to the ground. The demons cheered. The bewitched townspeople hardly batted an eye. Instead, they surged toward the gates with only one purpose. Open them and let the dragon and his strange man inside. The hordes of demons materialized just as the gates swung open and Will beckoned for them to enter. There were more of these super cool guys who recommended the fruit. Nice! Will bent down and knelt. He served these guys now completely. That fruit that they'd all been told not to eat was grade A stuff. God was a liar. They would depose him and crown the head demon king. The townspeople continue to flock to Diabolical's side, but we'll get to that right after the sponsor break. Diabolical looked around at the townspeople running up to him and his horde, smiles on their faces, throwing their arms around the fiends. Okay, wow, that was fast, Diabolical said. He didn't know what else to say. The demons just backed up and looked awkward. They didn't do hugs. Play it cool, Diabolical hissed. He cast his eye around, looking for anyone who might dare oppose him. Conscience stood well in the back of the crowd, looking stony-faced and displeased. Diabolical made a note of his face. He'd have to remember him for later. For now, it was time to seize power. Will led Diabolical to the Iron Throne and there again knelt before the literal devil. What could he do to make Diabolical's reign a success? Diabolical winked back at his fellow demons. This was a total freebie. They were expecting to have to brutally subjugate at least a good chunk of the city, but the vast majority of these guys were welcoming them with open arms. Diabolical looked back toward Will. Will should just tell everyone how great Diabolical was. There'd be some questions, of course, once the high wore off. But Will had met Diabolical, and he knew the demon was a lot chiller than God. So tell everybody about that. Give his podcast a five-star rating, tell his friends, that kind of thing. The demons sat around Diabolical that night. What was on the agenda for tomorrow? Robbing? Killing? Stealing stuff? Torture? This was going to be great. Cool it, Diabolical barked and the demons froze. They were not robbing and killing anyone just yet. They were going to be real nice until they had complete control over everyone. No demon had done anything half this big in history. They weren't going to be known as the guys who screwed it all up. Tomorrow, there'd be mandatory continuing education classes for all the demons at Mansoul University. They were going to have to learn how to be super deceptive, 
super fast. The next day, the demon professor, Diabolical, shapeshifted into a guy with a suit. He pointed his stick at the chalkboard and began the CLE lecture. Here's the thing. This was a game of priorities. He knew they all just wanted to start in on ruining people's lives, and he got it. Killing people was really fun, but that was pretty much day one stuff for the demons. In the long run, they existed because they hated God, so messing with God was a better long-term strategy. Professor Diabolical stalked around the classroom. It was just common sense that God was going to get word of this sooner or later, and then he'd come and kill them all and liberate the people in Mansoul. But he really couldn't do that if everyone in Mansoul was just as bad as the demons. Who would God liberate? If the demons were just really oppressive, God would give the people strength to fight back. But if the demons were super nice, then they could probably win over a lot of people. If everyone in Mansoul became super demonic, then God would attack the city as a consuming fire, and the people would make their stand against God. Diabolical knew that to God, Mansoul wasn't just a set of buildings. It was the people that he loved. Through corruption of the people, Diabolical would strike right at God's heart. The demons clapped and cheered. Diabolical was brilliant. This right here? This was why he was team leader. What were they going to do next? Diabolical drew some stick figures on the board. The influential people needed to be forced to join their side or dealt with quickly. And the three most influential people in town were Conscience, the mayor, and Will. Conscience had actively opposed Diabolical's takeover, so dealing with him was first on the list. Diabolical put a few of his most deceptive demons onto Conscience. Conscience had lived a long, good life, but he hadn't had a bit of fun. The demons had some suggestions for a good time. Soon, Conscience began getting involved in seedy affairs, visiting prostitutes in back alley dens, drinking in the pubs with the demons, stealing a little bit of money from the treasury to pay for the prostitutes and booze. The demons made sure that reliable townspeople just happened to be in key locations to witness these actions. When Conscience would inevitably warn the town against consorting with the demons and joining them in super seedy activities, Diabolical would produce one of his witnesses to show that Conscience was honestly a pretty gross guy. Conscience roared in anger, his loud voice shaking the town, and even Diabolical trembled. But as soon as he got over the initial shock, the leading demon began to laugh. He proclaimed loudly to the city. Conscience was clearly insane. Inconsistent? bad-tempered, and clearly not reliable if he didn't recognize the evil in his own life. The people nodded. They weren't going to listen to any of that bad stuff he was saying about Diabolical. Diabolical grinned. His plan was working. On the rare occasions where Conscience's warnings did briefly alarm the people of the city, Diabolical asked them what there was to be scared of. A screaming old man? God had done nothing since the demons had taken over. 
Clearly, he didn't care enough about Mansell to show up and punish anyone. Conscience was just an old man crying in memory of the past generation that was quickly fading away. They were young, and ancient values were of no place in modern society. Will shook his head. I mean, this was a cool and elaborate plan, but it was so much work. How hard was it just to kill the guy? The excuse the book gives us for why no one was ever able to kill Mr. Conscience was because his house was too strong, and that seems like a very lazy writing to me. Once Conscience had been discredited, the next target was the mayor. Again, killing the mayor would have been the more logical idea, but instead, Diabolical built a giant wall around the mayor's house that blocked every single ray of incoming sunlight. Then he told the mayor that he was not allowed to leave his home on pain of death. Literally, at this point you could have outright killed me and gotten less attention. The mayor rolled his eyes. And I was literally 100% on board with you coming into the city. The mayor was outraged at the perfidy of the demon. Which, to be fair, was on him because literally every bit of folklore you ever read warns you against dealing with the demons for exactly this reason. But the mayor also knew that Diabolical could easily torture and kill him, so he reluctantly obeyed the devil. Will became a relentless enforcer for the demons. Diabolical was afraid that because the city had turned from pro-god to pro-demon in like two hours, popular opinion could shift back just as quickly. Will was told to keep an eye out for the faintest hint of doubt in Diabolical's reign. But Will went above and beyond, taking a preemptive strike against dissent by attempting to convince the entire town that the demons were great. He ran through the streets, screaming about how great the demons were. He even dressed up as a poor tavern-going and, quote, rascal, so he could praise the demons in the dive bars. Anytime the city got up in arms about anything, Will used the people's enthusiasm and his high status to kick off a pro-demon rally. Will openly cursed God and his laws to everyone who would listen. Also, may I comment that this is pretty goofy writing? It's so hilariously and completely over the top. Feeling secure because of Will's control over the townspeople, Diabolical moved from consolidating his power to flaunting it. Partially out of necessity, he tore down the statue of God to efface the memory of the king who truly cared about the city. But it was all hubris when Diabolical put up a gigantic statue of himself in its place. And the people of the town loved it. They ate that stuff up. As for Will, his nearly absolute power got to his head and he became drunk. Coupled with his enthusiasm for Diabolical's rule, he became the authoritarian ruler that he had once accused God of being. Will scoured the town, torturing and killing anyone who still had relics from the old days. It was a dark day when he found a torn piece of paper with one of God's laws written on it, crumpled inside of a desk in a closet in his secretary's house. The secretary pled with Will, telling him that the paper had been forgotten for many years, the secretary had not known that it still existed and that he hated God now too. But it was no use. Will meted out 
brutal punishment. None would be spared. It was Will who was the very first to marry a demon. Not exactly sure how that works, and I'm not sure if Will knew either. I know shapeshifters can be very attractive by virtue of the fact that they can really look like anything, but I don't think I could stomach marrying a beautiful form if I knew that they were a psychotic demon underneath. Nor am I an expert into the fertility of demons or how any of that would even begin to work, but I guess you try enough stuff and something sticks, and that's how Will's first children were born. Soon, demon-human relationships became all the rage. I'm not sure whether it was done as a duty to the government, or if the demons had love potions, or if people just ignored the fact that they were demons because they shapeshifted into really attractive forms, but pretty soon everyone was marrying and having kids with demons. Sadly, the hybrid kids had no special powers. Will had thought it was going to be like a Merlin situation, where the half-humans would be super magical and take huge roles of leadership and be completely terrible, like drowning an entire ship full of kids terrible. Yeah, they were going to be completely terrible. That was going to be their one and only personality trait, John Bunyan said. This brought back the whole nature versus nurture debate. Were they evil because they were half-demon, or because they were named Spite God, Beastly, and Evil Concupiscence? There had to be a lot of childhood trauma there. Bunyan shrugged. They were evil because they were half-demons, and because they had some extremely racist characteristics. In turn, these hybrid kids would get married and have more kids, and quote, many bad brats, too many to be here inserted. Meanwhile, Diabolical builds a fortress called Sweet Sinhold and chooses for its captain a really, and I quote, lewd fellow who could find more sweetness when he stood sucking off a lust than he did in all the paradise of God. If that kind of over-the-top irony is your thing, Thank Project Gutenberg, because the Holy War is free to read online, and there's a whole lot more where that came from. We could spend several hours just churning through all sorts of tedium and obsequious language, but instead, we'll cut off the episode here and come back in 40 years. Just kidding. You'll only have to wait two weeks for the next episode, but 40 years will have passed in the story. I do want to be clear the time jump will be very House of the Dragon style. Everything will be absolutely the same, except for the things the showrunners John Bunyan and Caleb Howard want to be different. Normally, I do some evaluation of the story at the end of the episode, but we're really smack dab in the middle of everything. I'm going to hold on any commentary until the end of next episode. That's all for this week. We'll continue the story of the Holy War next time and find out what happens once God figures out what went down in the city of Mansoul. We'll continue to focus on the story of Will, whom I truly believe is Bunyan's most compellingly written character, and see how he doubles down on the side of the demons. Thank you so much for listening. This has been one of my favorite stories so far, and I'm so excited that I get to tell you the story. Please give me a five-star review and share my podcast with your friends. Any feedback is appreciated, and thank you again for your time in listening to my episodes. I hope you all have a wonderful New Year's, and please come back to hear the powerful, 
gripping conclusion to this story. I promise you, the next episode is phenomenal, and I did cry while writing the script, so there's that. Credits to myself, Caleb Howard, for script writing, storytelling, and opening theme music. Credits to Evoke Music for the closing theme. Credits to Evoke Music, Pixabay, YouTube, and Breaking Copyright for the background music. And to every musician who releases open source music for up-and-coming artists such as myself, thank you so much.